when you're a full grown adult. I watch so many young Indian American kids now, one that had me on a podcast recently, and like they're just way more resourceful and way more industrious than I ever would have been at their age. I think I would have probably told myself, you can do more than you're doing, despite the fact that you think you're working on it. Just look at the examples around you. Welcome to the Indianist Podcast, a show about leaders of Indian origin who have overcome challenges and worked with dedication to ultimately achieve success. By telling the stories of the defining milestones in their journeys, we hope to inspire others to learn how they too can succeed in their pursuits. Here's your host, Sanjay Puri. So welcome to the Indianist Podcast. Our podcast is really about having conversations with leaders in the Indian American community and people of Indian origin. A lot has been made about what makes so many Indian Americans or people of Indian origin successful, whether it's Satya Nadella, Vice President Harris, you name it, across the board. So we're going to have conversations to really find out what is the secret mojo of people, whether it's in arts, literature, science, business, technology, so that they can inspire or provide a path for the next generation of people or people who want to follow them. So with that, today we have a very, very interesting guest, if I may say so. Indians and Indian Americans, someone like me, are typically focused on being in the technology world or being in the medical world. Our guest today has flown B-52 fighter pilot planes. He's also hung out with Richard Branson, with his company, in trying to put people like you and me up into space as tourists. Welcome, Swami Iyer. It's a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Thanks, Ajay. It's great to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Swami, would love to see if we can go back to the beginning of your journey. You know, where were you born? Just walk us through that so people have some kind of uh, idea. And what was it like growing up? Sure. Probably like a lot of Indian American kids that were born here in the U.S., my family immigrated to New York on some of the visas when engineers and nurses could come in the 70s. And so I was born there, lived there for a while, then we moved down to Florida, also like many Indian families that did that to get to warmer weather. From there, I went through high school, and then I went on to college at the University of Michigan, and you know, my career as an aerospace engineer and a pilot. That's fantastic. Any siblings while growing up, Swami? I have one sister. She's doing quite well as well. She's an executive at the United Healthcare. So she's probably smarter than me in a lot of ways. Wow. Aren't they all? Were your parents and did they have any background in flying or in aerospace by any chance? Well, my grandfather was one of the original members of the Indian Air Force when it came into existence, when it was British and then it became Indian. And then my uncles were involved in aviation and aerospace. My father was an aerospace type engineer as well. So it was in the blood, I guess, third generation. Well, that's very interesting. So was that what led you, I mean, because it's a very unique path that you have followed. Just walk us through that. When you went for aerospace engineering, you could have gone to computer science or anything else in the great University of Michigan. What drove you to doing that? You know, oddly, it was my dad. My dad used to take me to the shop floor. You know, when he first came to the country, though he had a degree, they made him work on the main manufacturing floor, quality control and things like that. You know, a lot of Indians, their degrees are recognized, so he had to come up from the bottom. But from a very young age, my father would take me to see the machine shop floors. He'd walk around to see aircraft parts. And so I became, without any other instigation from anybody else in the family, just very interested in airplanes and flying and wanted to be an astronaut at a very young age as a kid. And so that just kind of went from there. It never really entered my mind to be anything else. 
you know, seeing your father doing all of this, was there a message in there that, you know, hey, you got to work hard? Obviously, you had a tremendous career, but what were the memories that you have of being with your father? We started off pretty, I would say, meager beginnings. You know, my mother and father were both came from difficult lives in India. And then the stories my father would tell, he would never tell them unless you poked him really hard to get the question. He would never talk about how hard he worked, but he would just work hard. So he lived by example more than work. My mother did the same thing. She was an orphan and she educated herself all the way through nursing school and came to the U.S. And my father had a somewhat similar background. They had a pretty beautiful love story, but they came to the U.S. and we started from the very bottom, living in you know, bad parts of town in New York and everything. And I watched my father just work nonstop to move us to a better place and a new life. And he was always putting in a lot of hours and they always insisted I worked hard on everything that I did. So that cultural upbringing was, you know, they just refused to leave it, live in the station of life that they had. So they moved from India, started a whole new life, right? And that's always an inspiration by example for both of them. So that was a big inspiration that probably has left a big imprint on you. Swami, when you graduated from aerospace school and you went to pilot training, etc., I'm a big Top Gun fan and stuff like that. When I look at them, I don't see, at least I didn't see too many folks like you with your name in there. What was it like to go there? That must have been a very interesting experience. Tell our listeners what it was like, please. Yeah, it was 25, almost 30 years ago, but I was one of the only ones. I remember I was always the only guy, right? Wherever I go, whatever squadron I was in it. We met a few other Indian American pilots, Ball and Iyer and Oprakash and Stinger, Maroon and some others. We were always the only ones. Like there's only three or four. In fact, at the time we came up, I think there was only three or four of us ever that I knew in the Air Force, one or the guy that maybe. And so each one of us found our way through that entire group to like anybody who comes into a highly competitive environment like that comes from outside of the normal cultural background, you have to be better just to be considered equal. So you had to work harder, you had to do more than the others so that you could be considered like on par, right? So it was a bit of a struggle, but the Air Force was always really good because it was still a very diverse organization and people always came from different walks of life. It didn't really matter. So you were always held against your own merits, essentially, for how you worked. And so that was very helpful to find common bonds. A lot of my best friends were from the Air Force, you know, all different walks of life. But as an Indian, my parents weren't exactly open-minded to me joining and becoming a combat pilot. Most of my friends were going on to be doctors or lawyers. You were always outside the norm. So every one of us that came in had this, all the other Indian American pilots I met, the other few others, it was, we were always the black sheep. We were always the guy that was doing something <laughs> different. When I joined beyond the desire to be a pilot, I felt like if we as an Indian American community were going to participate in the U.S., some of us had to serve, whether that's some kind of weird cultural obligation. But if we aren't represented in the places where we're risking our future and our lives for the benefit of the country that's given us so much, then we don't have as much. You know, I feel like it's a difficult claim to make to be Indian and American at the same time. There had to be some of us there. So I found a lot of meaning in that to make sure that our community participated in every walk of life. And now, 30 years later, everybody did so many more Indian Americans in the Air Force now and constantly inspiring us. We even have the first Sikhs wearing all their traditional garb in the military. A good friend of my brother is now the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force. He served with us. He was one of the first few pilots like we were. He's been a big pioneer in that stuff. So we, for a guy coming in, it was a little bit tough, but luckily... There were a few others, and we've been friends for decades, all of us. And we still talk about how different it is now than it was before. That's very inspiring. You said you had to be better 
to be equal. And then obviously you wanted to give back. That's very, very interesting to know because that was what was driving you to give back to the United States, not just, you know, by joining the armed forces, etc. Just walk us a little bit more into what was going through in your mind about giving back. Nobody can obligate an entire cultural group, but if you're going to participate in everything that's great about this country, then that means there's sacrifice that also has to be put in. And certainly a lot of Indian Americans have done great things in building communities and developing businesses and improving healthcare and obviously in the IT industry, which that's where my wife works. But there's service too, right? Now we have Indian Americans serving in Congress. Now we have Indian Americans all over our military services where you know, you're committing to the values of the country, right? And so that, to me, that always felt like it wouldn't be something we could all claim if some of us didn't at least do that. And a lot of people find great meaning and good purpose in their careers there. So that it just, it was just one of those things that came to find meaning. At first, I joined because I wanted to be a pilot, but then I began to realize how important service was through my education in the Air Force. And I'm just very proud to see so much of it. I remember being in the first few ever Diwali celebrations in the Pentagon. Bringing that to the Pentagon for the first time was inspiring to be a part of. Again, that was Robbie and some other guys that did it. But it, it just shows that we could be integrated even in the places where we don't, as a group, typically find ourselves. So I thought that was just something we as a group, as a culture in India, is Indian Americans, can say we have people who serve. We even had Balan was the first of us to make general. So you got a one star, and then Robbie is now an assistant secretary. So we've made big strides even inside the military, sir, which is you know great. Now you see people serving in the government, like Kamala Harris. It's very inspiring for me because my daughters are also three young South Indian girls, and here's a South Indian girl who's become the vice president of the country. So in the time from when there was nobody around to now vice president, that it just shows that our culture is, it is the part of the grand experiment, and we're going to be a part of the future of the company, and we're putting our own time and personal sacrifice into it, which is good. It's good for our community as it was all. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. So from there, just walk us forward. You left, obviously, then you moved to running basically the pilot training academy. What was the reason for doing that? Well, so I went on to be a combat pilot in the B-52. It's bomber aircraft. I served in Afghanistan. And from there, I was selected to become a test pilot. So I went on to become a test pilot and flew a bunch of different aircraft. And then, so not the primary pilot training process, but in the test pilot process with the elite best pilots kind of come to become test pilots, I was able to become the director of operations of that school. It's basically the guy that runs all the flying operations over there. And it was great because I was a trainer pilot. I taught people as an instructor as well as being in combat. Everybody in the Air Force, as you become more senior, you're not only just a combat, but you instruct other pilots. As I became a instructor pilot in combat, then I also became an instructor pilot as a test pilot. And then I was selected to become the director of operations. And so that was it's a great job. It may sound very important, but it's probably the most fun flying job in the Air Force. So anybody who gets it is just happy that they got that job. You fly 20, 30 different kinds of airplanes in a given year. You train a bunch of students. You work with internationally. You fly to other countries and fly their airplanes. And you learn everything there's to know about an airplane and its systems capabilities. And because I was an aerospace engineer, it fit very naturally for me. It's also one of the places where all the astronauts are typically selected from. So that was another goal of mine. Didn't work out. Obviously, I moved back into industry, but the training of that school, learning how to large, run a large organization, a large operation with high risk, high demand, big safety concerns, that puts a lot of things in perspective, not just cost and business, but also physical safety and engineering. I would have to say is my favorite flying job of all the jobs I've ever had. Wow. It sounds very exciting. But then you made a move to industry too, Swami, right? 
You're right. I was selected to come to the Pentagon and work on what's known as foreign military sales. And that's like, you know, providing U.S. military equipment to our allies, essentially, right? To provide capacity for the entire world to take on whatever the issue is, whether their humanitarian needs or combat needs that we share the entire space of the world with our air forces to share capacity. Can't do it all as a single force, right? So I remember I worked the India account. I worked a lot of the Asia account. I had other officers that I worked with, but we were able to sell C-17s to India, C-130s to India, some other programs as well, some weapons programs. And so we were able to give significant billions of dollars of product and capabilities to in the Indian Air Force. Given my grandfather's past and others, you know, there was a lot of people that knew me and knew of him. And so we were able to make great strides and credibilities having, again, an Indian American who served and flown the vehicles to now talk about it, provide them with key expert advice as we put the deals together. That led me to be seen by a lot of industries. Boeing, Lockheed, Honeywell, and others, somebody who could learn to work business deals in foreign transactions, and I also had classified work. So I was offered a few jobs, but the one I picked was the one at Honeywell as a vice president. My father had worked there for 35 years. That was the company he grew up in, and then I was a kid running around all the shop floors. So here I am later, vice president of their defense programs. It was awesome, and I ended up doing a lot of international work with them. And that's Honeywell's got to be one of the best places for a young leader to come up and learn how to do business because it's, I think, probably the best education you can get on how to run a company and how things work. And I did that for a few years. And after that, I moved on to other industry roles to become a president and take on my own companies. And you had some very interesting jobs, but you were also the CEO of Israeli Aerospace Industries, which is why you're not Israeli. So how did that happen? I was a CEO for their North American company. So Israel II is a very big company, it's government-owned, and it's obviously run by Israelis in Israel, but they wanted an American, and American executives to help develop their products in the United States. They were doing hundreds of millions of dollars of effort, both inside and outside the United States, and they were wanting to bring the products, like the Iron Dome and other things in. You know, they had a company here, it had been there for 30 years, they have been using it to bring equipment and supplies that they had bought from the United States as part of their defense, but they wanted to grow their sales of their products into the U.S., they recruited me. They called these typically executive recruiters, call other executives in America. I was very intrigued by it because I thought the products were extraordinarily innovative, extraordinarily affordable, and very, very capable. And I thought that one of the greatest things you can do is to bring great products into the United States military, which is, at Israel's known, one of the best producers of this kind of equipment. So when they asked me to do it, I interviewed and they selected me. And I was kind of a from the grounds up approach to build up that program for them. And we did some good work getting the company started and getting the businesses moving. And they were already had some established factories here. So we tried to pivot it off of that. So great group of engineers and business people to work with over there. All they cared about was getting good capability to the warfighter, which is not different from other companies, but how personal they take it because every one of them serves in their own military made the products just that much better. So I was privileged to help bring as much of their capability to the U.S. as we could. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, you obviously said being the heading operations for the flight school was one of the best jobs you had. What were some of the challenges that you dealt with? I mean, you had, as I said, an incredible career along the way. Just talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you dealt with. From flying to in business as well, that when you're doing a flying operations business or when you're working on highly difficult systems, whether it be space flight systems or whatever, safety is huge, right? And so being able to understand intimately from the cockpit all the way to the boardroom the decisions that you make and have implications on people's safety or safety in combat or even collateral damage on the ground or passenger safety and spaceflight and things, 
being intimately knowledgeable, hands on the flight controls in the seat in the middle of the same danger helps you understand the value of the products, how good they have to work and how well they have to perform. So you can provide that level of safety capability in very difficult, high pressure situations. So the challenges are always, how do you make a thing very capable, very safe, but at the same time at a cost that the customer can afford, you know, because you can engineer something to the infinite level, it'd take forever. But to do that and understand it, so you know, what's exactly the right amount good enough to get it in, that was always been the challenge in airspace in general. We always struggle. Everyone's got competitor products. Which one's better? People have to make choices. But then you also have to be profitable so that you can pay the employees and you can keep the company going. So those are always difficult challenges. They call it like the innovator's dilemma. But when you add the fact that lives are at stake in aerospace with the work that we do, it makes the best, by far the most difficult challenge. All the normal challenges in business, whether it be business organization or politics or whatever it is, making sure the thing you make keeps people safe and effective while profitable has always been the challenge. Every job I've been in, it's been one that I've thoroughly enjoyed getting into because it, there's knowing the system well enough to make money on it is, I think it's fairly unique to find people that can do that. That's great to hear. Do you think your roots, your family, your background has helped you deal with some of those challenges, your work ethic, et cetera? Can you talk a little bit about that? There's a work ethic, an ability to innovate in a low-cost situation. Some people call it Jobard and the things we learned about as Indians that it's a level of resourcefulness. I don't think there's anything particular about the fact that from India or it's Indians, but there's a when you grow up with meager beginnings and you learn how to make do and then to let your work ethic, that's what you're taught as a kid. Your work ethic is how you overcome your challenges. You put the time there, but then you put the intelligence and the thinking and the innovative mindset, resourcefulness that you learn from every Indian auntie or uncle or friend or cousin. You learn how to make it work. You only have to spend a little time. I love going to my mom's village and everybody just make a do with what they have, no matter how much money they have or they don't. So as you grow up from that, that work ethic is to put the time in. That's what inspired me. My father taught me by example, and that's time and effort I put into the jobs I do now. So I think that there's a lot to be said for the way we raise our kids, right? The way we teach them to work hard in school and work hard in college. And I've never seen anybody make excuses in our community. It's the ones I've been blessed to be around. It's no, we just find a way to get it done. And we, and there's a good sense of community and teamwork. There's always inspirational stories shared. Typically, it's your mom saying somebody did better than you, but still, it's the same thing. But you learn that people find great ways to overcome their challenges, and if they can do it, you can do it. I've always found our community very open to sharing those stories, sometimes through the mom and auntie network, which is a little competitive. But I remember talking to a lot of my other friends that were in different industries. You know, one of my friends that I grew up with is now the Surgeon General. You see these stories, and we all started the same way. We all had nothing, and here we are making it. Those stories of how they overcome or what keep you thinking and moving, right? Well, as you said, meager beginnings and trying to make the most of it, but you talked about the work ethic. Work ethic, that is the secret mojo of trying to make the most of it because that's what people want to know, what makes all of them so successful. Where do you see your journey going forward? Because you accomplished a lot. Just talk a little bit about the journey ahead for you, Swami. Maybe I'm a little more simple than most folks. I just, I love working in aerospace and in technology, whether it be AI or cyber or aerospace and defense. For me, it's what I love. It's what I know very well. It's where I can make the best impact or contribution. So moving forward, either I move on to the next CEO or president role for Virgin Galactic that I just retired from, and, or I go into venture capital and I start investing. I have a lot of small startups, a lot of 
veteran-owned and minority-owned start- startups that I work with, mentor them and advise them and help them grow into the market. But you know, it's nice at this point to have the time and the comfort level to make my own choices where I go next. But if I can do, keep doing the work I was doing, which is democratizing space and making things safer when you fly, and we've got so many things going on in the industry now, flying air mobility or flying cars, as they like people like to call them, to going to space for the average person to going faster in transport, you know, supersonic and hypersonic airliners. Honestly, there's so many cool things to do. I'd be happy to do anything that, you know, is available to me with at the moment. It's a great opportunity to do almost anything you want. This is an aerospace renaissance going out. So I'm, I'm enjoying being a part of all of it. Well, that's fantastic. Air taxis, I would love to beat some of the Washington, D.C. traffic, believe me, if I could get one of those air taxis going out there. You know, you talked about this being the Indianness show. How do you deal with the little bit of a conflict or the challenge that we have our culture at home, the values, and then we live in the society. I mean, you have to balance both. How do you deal with that? To be fair, we obviously have this dichotomy within our community, those who are from India and come to the United States and those that are born and raised and all the terms like ABC and things that we use. For anybody that was born and raised in the country, you, you learn from your family, you gain your culture from your family, but you also have to integrate and understand the culture of the society you work in and live in and gain the values from that. And obviously serving in the military, you begin to understand and believe a lot in the American democracy. But both of us come from two strong democracies, the oldest and the largest, and similar work ethics, similar belief systems. So that's very compatible on the personal cultural stuff, whether it be religious or whatever. You, you We all seem in our communities to move to where our families are originally from and whether it be a South Indian or a community and we but in college we all and in the world we all kind of integrate just nicely. So my wife was born in India and she moved here. So that keeps me very well grounded in our cultural side of things that could be in our industry, especially one like airspace, which is not completely covered with a lot of Indian Americans and lose touch at times. So I do that. My mother and father are still, you know, every day there's a new holiday I'm supposed to go to the temple for and do Archana. I go to do it. I spent a lot of time trying to teach our children a lot more about it and take them to India. I traveled. Luckily, my jobs have allowed me to travel to India a lot. I used to go to India two weeks out of every month for several years because of what I was doing. So just on my own, without my family around, wandering around New Delhi and learning all about the city and learning all about the different government organizations and being invited to so many other in India cultural events, which you don't get as an Indian American, you know, what you get as a, a transplanted version that people try to make as authentic as possible. That was really great to be to spend several years of my life in industry as an adult working with India, being an Indian. That really helped me stay connected. The communities here are large and strong, particularly now in the DC area. I mean, there's just you can get almost anything that you want and meet in any holiday or festival. So that's been great. And then having a strong group of Indian American friends and family, large groups that we stay very connected. So obviously, I'm not as intimate as a person born and raised, but. I've been fairly blessed with a lot of Indian American families and Indians that I've met that we kind of carved out our own unique Indianness, if you will, within this culture. Your own unique Indianness. I like that. That is very, very cool. So, if you were to have a message for your young self when you look back, what would that be? I think the thing that you don't realize when you're young, and you only realize now that you're older talking about it, is to kind of really understand everything there is that your Indian community, your family are teaching you. By example, right? A lot of Indian family members and uncles will give you lots of lectures. I used to listen to them all and they, they were full of wisdom that I find even to this day. But the examples that they set, the behaviors that they set, they're far more amazing and inspirational than you realize in your youth. 
I wonder how many things I probably missed because I didn't really understand that you don't have a context as a child or as a person, what these things mean to your potential future that you just don't. So you're lucky that your family just trains you <laughs> so that it's a muscle memory for you that you could eventually rely upon, but you could enrich yourself and your wisdom a lot more if you really understood what that example is that they're teaching you that's born into you and it's raised into you and it's a superpower you may not realize you have. And you can begin using that a hell of a lot sooner than when you're a full-grown adult. And I've watched so many young Indian American kids now, one that had me on a podcast recently, and like, they're just way more resourceful and way more industrious than I ever would have been at their age. I think I would have probably told myself, you can do more than you're doing, despite the fact that you think you're working on it. Just look at the examples around you. That's great to hear. Swami, we're going to do a little bit of a lightning round, so to speak, of questions that maybe a little bit light. So how do you define Indianness? It's a personal thing for a lot of people. would love to know what your definition is. I would say the strong work ethic, the resourcefulness, the tight-knit sense of community and family that we have. You know, you can go almost anywhere and meet other Indians and you're simply bonded, mainly because we're displaced here. But those are kind of things that are uniquely Indian. It's independent of our religious views, but there seems to be a significantly high level of, at least of the Indians and Indian Americans I've interacted with here in the U.S., and generally of tolerance for different perspectives, views, when you look at how generally in any American community, we all seem to view issues of diversity or religious diversity or LGBTQ elite, generally a very accepting group of people doing what they think is right. So I think Indianness is one of hard work, acceptance, tolerance, community, and innovativeness. I think it's impossible to extricate that from us. Hard work, tolerance, work ethic, innovation. That's very, very cool. Really like that. Is there one person that within the Indian community, whether it's in India or here, that inspires you, that you would say, hey, I'm uh, well, sure there are many. Apart from the fact that by far it's my mother and father and their story and how they overcame so much, I'd say them. And then you know, within the Indian American community, or in India, or in India, more historical figures, uh, Swami Vivekananda, things are have been inspirational to me, just in terms of philosophical open-mindedness and discussions. I think within the levels of the Indian, like let's say, current community, I look at people like Indra Nui and Kamala Harris, and I look at some of the inspiration. Obviously, Gandhi is inspirational to everybody, but then just to look at some of the the people that have come up behind and taken on the world, you look at some of the pitch eye, you look at a lot of these CEOs that have come up, just done amazing things, taking over the world. I think all from meager beginnings, all from tough times. And I look at them, they become inspirations to me. And so they're all for different reasons. And none of it, it transcends their gender, it transcends their religion. They seem to be able to do wonderful things. So anytime I see anybody achieve, but those are the few that come to mind that I spend time thinking about what they would do next. That's good to know. So, I mean, you are involved in space or directly, indirectly, etc. Do you believe there is life outside of Earth? I think it'd be an awful waste of space if there wasn't, <laughs> right? Just mathematically, statistically, it should happen. It should be there. And so, do I think there is? I don't know for a fact, but I would be utterly shocked. At some point in, our, in the human race's existence, we don't find it elsewhere, even if it's microbial or whatever. But just given the level of complex change in chemistry and, and things within even our own slows, I can't believe there isn't something. So you believe that there is a strong possibility that there is, for sure. Swami, 
there was a big event that happened, and this is for our listeners who might not be as sophisticated, the starship that went up. Can you just explain the significance of that? Because people say, hey, it's a game changer. Just for a non-space person, if you can just explain that. Why is it important? The biggest things that SpaceX is doing and Elon is doing is reusability of high-thrust rocketry capability. Reusability is the only way we typically think we're going to make it further than just where we've gone with the moon. So that was pretty The fact that he's got so much lift going in that, that he can take significant payloads at a much lower cost per pound or per kilogram is a significant game changer because it's like driving your car, right? If you can get 50 miles per gallon or 100 miles per gallon versus five miles per gallon, then you can go further and do more things with what you've got. So we have to lift a significant amount of what we need to go to moon and go to Mars. And it's been extraordinarily expensive. The space shuttle used to be like a million dollars a pound or so to, to get space. And now we're trying to find ways to get people up to space in just like $10 million and thousands and thousands of pounds. So that's a big deal. And he's failing fast and he's finding ways and learning each time, which is, you know, that kind of money and capital is not something the U.S. government is normally accustomed to doing. Like they just don't do it like that. They've got since the 60s. And here you see SpaceX doing it. So once they can get that thing to work, or any of the other companies that are working on things like my own Virgin Galactic and others, we open up space, right? Up until now, only 600 people have ever gone to space in 60 years. But in the next few years, we're going to see double, triple, quadruple that inside single years. That means that the world changes. It literally changes the human condition. When people didn't used to think you could get to some other part of the world, not three months on a boat, whatever, now you can get there in a few hours. That made the world shrink. It made the world different. When you can open up space to go further and do more things with more people, and we then there used to be no human being would think they could ever fly in their lifetime. Now you can pay $70 and wear your pajamas and go wherever you want. I want space to be that boring. I think that's a big thing. And Starship and things are, they're the big stepping stones to that. Once we get those things and Virgin Galactic these things going, that then a person doesn't go, I'll go, space is something I'll never do to, I can't wait till I can save up money and I can go to space. Or it's a commonplace thing. It literally changed the way humanity thinks about the world. And today people think flying wherever they want is a human right. Can you imagine when people think flying to another planet and starting a new colony is almost like a human right or a given inevitability. So that's a big deal. That's why I think Starship is one of the most spectacular examples, but there's so many people doing a lot here that it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And I think we're in a great time for that. That's very helpful for people who really don't understand the significance you mentioned Virgin Galactic, so I can't resist asking you. You are working with Sir Richard Branson, who obviously lives life king size. Is there anything that you can share about your working with him that would be helpful to the listeners who know about his island and all that other exotic stuff? I've never been to his island. I've met him a few times and got a chance to interact with him. I think Richard's superpower is his optimism is, a, is infectious. And optimism can achieve great things. And I think that willingness to be open-minded and try for that. And you see this with Elon and some of the other guys that are doing this, except optimism is infectious. And so he wasn't the richest billionaire, but he was the one that was the first out the door to try and get this done. I find it inspirational just in of itself. He's actually also has some Indian ancestry, his background, if you don't know that story. But he does have an infectious optimism and a willingness to make change happen. And I think getting to know him that way was... It's just, it was an honor, right, to meet him and to watch him. I've learned a lot from everything he's written and he's done, and to meet him was a privilege. 
Well, now that you mentioned he has Indian ancestry, then we should get him on the Indian as podcast. Thanks for that tip, uh, <laughs> Swami. That's good luck. <laughs> yeah, that's very helpful. Finally, any message for aspiring people who want to follow in your footsteps, Indian Americans, etc., that you would like to close with, Swami? I think one of the great things about our community is we're really always willing to help and give advice. What I think is also pretty interesting about our community is everyone strikes their own path. They're very independent. There's not a book or a checklist or copy this process and you'll... I've watched every Indian American who's been successful or Indian who's been successful. And I think it goes for anybody of any culture that you chart your own path as long as you have the ethics and stuff. And I've also never had a single person in our community, when I've asked for advice or help, not give it. And so if you want to be a part of this Indian, this idea, you have to be that available as well. So always call, ask for help. I'm always happy to do it. I think we do that for each other all the time. I know the other communities do it as well, but it's great when your own family, your own community does it. So I think that's that would be my you know, advice to people is don't feel afraid to approach anybody in the community, no matter how or not successfully you think they are. Everybody has some piece of this story that you're going to need. And you, know, you should learn from every one of us, if not others outside of her. Well, that's great to know for people that reach out, don't be afraid to ask. And having said that, I guess people can find you on LinkedIn and other places too, right, Swami? Absolutely. No problem. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Swami. This has been truly enjoyable and really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Swami. Thank you, Subject. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Indianist Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future inspirational stories.